Tom Reuter's fear at his graduation was that he would do just as he was supposed to do. Get a job in corporate America, buy a house, drive a nice car. And each morning he'd wake up, shower, drink coffee, drive to work, work the day, come home, eat dinner, go to bed, and then do it all again the next day. And the day after that, and the day after that, on and on for 30 years or so. And then eventually he'd retire, gray and old, putter around the house, walk laps around the local mall. It would be kind of like Bill Murray's Groundhog Day, only without the excitement. Tom was only just getting comfortable with entering his 20s, and that idea terrified him. He felt he needed to do something exciting, something different, something that would really be special. At about that time, his lifelong friend Alex bounds into the scene. Alex is talking about an amazing adventure, a huge adventure. He's talking about riding an adventure motorcycle all the way around the world. Now, how exciting is that? Two buddies carving up dirt on motorcycles, blowing in and out of countries, eating up the globe. It didn't take all that much to convince Tom that this was what he needed. A real adventure. A real motorcycle adventure. There would be nothing about it that is routine. It would certainly never be boring. It would be wild. Interestingly, when we plan some adventure like this, some epic thing that we're doing, we often see it through a lens of achievement. You know, Alaska or bust, Ushuaia or bust, California or bust. It's as if it were all about the end, the achievement. They say that everything has a season in life, a time, perhaps even a lifespan. And when it's over, we need to let it go and move forward. But it doesn't mean necessarily walking away and forgetting. It means carrying forward what you've learned and what you've become from the experience. And that may be one of the things that we can draw from Tom's story, that it's not so much about the miles that you've ridden, how many countries you've visited, how many borders you've crossed. It's about what you take away from the journey. And that has nothing, and yet everything, to do with the ride itself. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Sam Manikin, Simon Austin, Simon Pavey, Bill Burgoon, Jocelyn Snow, Charlie Borman, Simon Thomas, Lisa Thomas, Grant Johnson, Graham Jarvis, Elspeth Bay, Brittany Smout, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the Moto Breeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. Motobreeze.com. Best Rest Products is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. Cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Yeah, my name's Tom Reuter. I'm uh, from Tacoma, Washington, and I'm currently a banker in Tacoma. Tom, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey, thanks very much for having me, Jim. 
Your story really begins at graduation, a fear you had at graduation. Can we start there? Can you talk about that, that fear? Yeah, it was definitely just a... Yeah, fear or, you know, anxiety is a common word these days, but, you know, you, you just through high school, through uh, college, you just kind of, I felt like I was going through the motions. I was able to, you know, do a good job at every step of the way, but it never felt like I had any creativity in, in, in what I was doing. It was just kind of the next logical thing for me to do. And so that's what led to this kind of, you know, seeking something beyond what was the normal path. And, and, uh, it was my friend Alex that presented that path to me and it turned out to be adventure motorcycle riding. You weren't into motorcycles up to the, till that point. No, I hadn't ridden one until about nine months before, before we took off on our trip. Right. Now you're saying that you're, you know, that you have this fear or this feeling of you're, you're falling into the routine. Where, where does the routine come from? Where's the idea? Like, are you following sort of a, a, a pre-described thing for life from your parents or society? Or where does that come from? You know, it, it, it's tough to say. I, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't my parents pushing me or any individual. It, it just felt like, you know, the next step was probably going to be a corporate desk job. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's what I have now. And it's, it's, pretty satisfying for, for what I needed to be right now. But at the time I was, you know, I was, when I took off on this trip, I was 24 years old. I was just raring to go. And, and, you know, I think anyone who's been that age just knows what that feeling is. It's, it's unstoppable and it's limitless. And, and I couldn't put that kind of energy. I couldn't bottle that energy into a desk job at the moment. So you were worried that if you just kept going on that trajectory, you're going to end up at a desk job and kind of feel like you never lived. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and it was, uh, I think I, you know, I, I can touch on it just briefly. My, my friend Alex had a twin brother and, and, uh, his, his twin was kind of an inspiration of adventure. He was, he was always, you know, he, he was a skydiver starting in high school and he, and he was always, you know, doing the craziest things that he could. And it, it really hit me in particular. And I won't speak for my friend, Alex, who I did the trip with, but uh, his twin, Andy, passed away in a plane crash, um, probably when we were in college. And so that really, that really rocked me a little bit in that, in that, you know, you don't get you don't get all the time in the world. And, and so being presented with an opportunity and the job to fund it leading up to it uh, was really, it was a no brainer for me. And I was just lucky to be in a position to follow Alex at that time. Alex is a lifelong friend for you. Yeah. Going back to the boy Scouts back when we were oh, probably five years old is when we met. Right. And, and you went right through the boy Scouts and it sort of got the top position. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's Eagle Scout. What is an Eagle Scout? It's, it's hard to describe. You, you got to put in the time in the Boy Scouts and it's, it's basically, it's the highest rank. Uh, you got to go through a, a number of merit badges and, 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 and coursework, um, you know, and, and, and for me being in the Boy Scouts, it wasn't about the, the badges and the coursework necessarily. It was more about the, the times with friends and, and getting outside and, and seeing new places. And I think that really instilled, you know, 
kind of my my worldview and what made adventure motorcycling so enticing to me. What, what sort of level do you come out as, a, as an Eagle Scout? Are you like a, a survivalist at that point? Can you run into the woods sort of with a knife and survive? There's quite a few elements of that. Uh, you, you learn a little bit of everything. You can you can tailor it to your individual, um, you know, interests. There are required coursework and then there's some uh, that you get to choose. Uh, for me, I definitely felt more more of a survivalist than a lot of my, you know, what I would call city slicker friends that I had met along the way to, uh, you know, that had never, never been out in the woods before. I'd been spending my weekends in the woods, you know, for most of my youth at that point because of the Boy Scouts. You mentioned Alex came to you with this idea. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so it was... <clears throat> Alex came to me with this idea. I was recovering from a hernia surgery and I, I'd been working at a ski hill before that. Right after college, you know, as, as, as you mentioned, Jim, I was initially, you know, seeking some sort of uh, fun way to, a, a way to have a fun adventure. And I thought it would be at the ski hill and, and that didn't turn out to be the right setting for me. Um, it, there wasn't enough going on there. People weren't necessarily working at a high enough rate that I wanted. And, and that kind of, it, it, it bored me surprisingly, even though skiing is probably still my favorite passion. Um, so I don't know if it's luck or not, but I, I got a hernia from skiing too much that season. And, and so I wound up on a couch and it was then that my friend Alex, who the, the ski hill where I worked at was just outside of uh, Bellingham, Washington. And that's where Alex was going to college. He was a year behind me. Um, and, we connected that winter while I was laid up and that's where he started talking about this motorcycle adventure trip. And I'd never heard of anything like it, but he, he just wouldn't stop talking about it. It was every time that we met and, and, you know, he'd already lined up a job for himself where he was going to save at the time he was going to save probably $50,000 and it was going to be around the world trip. And the more he talked, the more I just started listening, started asking questions. Um, you know, he started talking about being able to get me this job, where we'd work and deliver uh, appliances up in Alaska for Home Depot. And, and the more he just kept opening doors in my, my mind and, and truthfully in my, in my, my world. And eventually it, it became a reality that we could do this and having no, at the time, no girlfriend, no real career, anything like that, nothing to hold me back. It, it just, I wish I could say there was more of a decision point, but we just, we just went down the path and ultimately ended up in South America. What was it in your mind about the, his description of traveling around the world in a motorcycle that seemed so interesting because you weren't into riding at that point? You're not a motorcyclist. Yeah, that's, that's just it. I, would, I knew I liked travel, especially international travel. I'd, I'd studied quite a bit of Spanish. I'd uh, lived in six weeks in, in Mexico in a city called Cuernavaca. And really enjoyed that experience. I was, I was doing a Spanish immersion program down there. Had done a trip to Europe after high school, really enjoyed that. And, and knew that I wanted to see more cultures and, and more parts of the world. As far as motorcycling, I think that really just tapped into that, that desire for something totally different than all the, all the book work that I've been doing up until that point. Um, something very hands-on, something exciting, um, I don't know. It just felt like something you could write home about. And I, I really, I really got excited about that, especially, you know, Alex is the kind of guy that he had 
he had four motorcycles at one time, you know, two of them he was taking apart, two of them he was putting back together. And so he always, he, he was the one that got me on a motorcycle and got me riding a little Honda 90 around Bellingham, got me comfortable with it before we bought the DRs. Mm. So did you do that? Did you go to Alaska and, and deliver appliances? Yeah. Yeah. And that was actually its own, its own adventure. Um, we flew up to, we worked two months in Juneau and then two months in Fairbanks and we would drive these, these, uh, flatbed semi trucks. We'd load them up with either appliances or lumber or sheetrock, uh, whatever the materials coming out of Home Depot were. It had one of those, they're called a Moffat forklift on the back. It's the kind that you, you put the forks into the back of the truck and it kind of pulls itself up onto the truck. And like I said, it was its own adventure. Uh, Fairbanks in particular, just with how cold it was. That must've been exciting though, because that's building up to you going on the adventure. And the whole time you're working, you're working with your buddy who's also going on the adventure. So that's got to prime the whole thing really well. Yeah, that's right. And it just felt like we were right. You know, there was nothing that could stop us at that point um, because it, you're right. We were working six days a week, you know, and, and we were the, I'd say Alex is the type and I, I fell into it real quick. I enjoyed it, but you know, he would check the bank account every night, his own. And then I started doing it on mine and we would, we would get it down to the penny, how much money we needed to save, how many days we thought that would take. And, and, uh, going six days a week, it was the only thing we could focus on. So it, it really became just, just kind of in a trance building toward this trip. And then in our, in our off time, we just planned the motorcycles and knew what we were going to, you know, what Farkles we were going to add to them. Which is great because planning that well, I mean, certainly makes you save a lot of money and also it lets you work through a bunch of details, at least that you can imagine before you go, less chance of being surprised. Exactly. You know, I've, I've listened to some of your other podcasts and I, 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 I understand the challenge that a lot of people have mentioned about, you know, finding the time, the money to do the trip and also to plan it. And, and it, you know, certainly on the planning side, I, I feel really lucky that I didn't have that issue. We had all the time in the world because we just had these dark Alaskan nights to sit there and, you know, hypothesize problems and solutions and, you know, what, what we wanted to bring, what we didn't want to. And by the time we got home, we, we probably had two months between returning from Alaska and, uh, and taking off on the road. And it, it was as easy as just working through the list that we had put together already and, and making some light modifications and, and going. We didn't have to plan anything once, once we were really ready to go. Did the job pay out? Did it work out? You saved your 50 grand. That was your goal, 50 grand. Initially we were going to do around the world and, and the, we probably got to 20 grand and in hindsight, 50 grand probably would never have covered around the world trip at that time. But we did get, I, I think I've left with about $28,000 in the bank. Um, and yeah, the job paid out. It was, it was at the time, I, I think annualized salary was probably, I don't know, a little north of $60,000, which is still really good money. It, if you're fresh out of college with no experience, it was great money. Mm -hmm. and, and at the same time, it was fun. We got our CDLs. Uh, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have traded that experience for, for anything. So what was departing like for you? It, it was such a foregone conclusion that I was honestly just excited to get it get underway. Uh, I definitely, you know, did a, what you might call a last meal with my, my family, my mom, my dad, my sister. And, uh, you know, but, but there wasn't too much fanfare beyond that. I had some friends up for the weekend and, you know, of course I'd been talking about this trip for, for months at that point. So they knew what was going on and, 
you know, some of them thought it was crazy. Some of them were jealous. Um, overall, everyone was supportive though. And yeah, as far as, you know, lifting the kickstand and pulling out of the driveway, it was, it was just time to go. And, and, and so, you know, a little bit of a tearjerker, but, but there was no, there was no doubt that we were going to ride off that morning. How did your family uh, react to you telling them that you're going to do this trip? You know, I think overall they were very supportive. I'm not sure if they really believed it would happen when I first mentioned it, probably, you know, a year or something like that before, before we left. Mm -hmm. But I, I think they saw throughout the, you know, leading up to departure, they saw that it was all Alex and I were thinking about. And, and I think the more questions they asked, the more they saw we, we had planned, you know, we didn't plan anything regarding route or where we're going to stay and how many days it's going to take, but we did plan every, every contingency for issues on the road. You know, I, I think it's hard to trust anything that a 24 year old says in hindsight now, but um, <laughs> all things considered, I, I feel like we were pretty well prepared and that, that goes back to, you know, I, I'm always, I'll always plug the the Eagle Scout mantra to, to be prepared. It, it was really, you know, it, I don't want to sound like we were, you know, your typical, your classic Boy Scout always standing at attention in uniform, but some of the stuff really was drilled into us and, and be prepared is one of those. And, and uh, I think it, it certainly paid off leading up to the trip and throughout the trip. You wrote a, a DR650, correct? That's right. Did, and you said you didn't do much to that bike before you left? Not too much. Um, you know, it, most of the modifications were for comfort, lower foot pegs, better seat, bigger gas tank, higher bars, uh, light suspension modifications. Probably would have done more of that because that issue plagued me throughout the trip, but nothing to the engine. Um, you know, the rest of it was luggage and, and auxiliary lights. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Cause you had the, you had the, the rear shock problem. And I guess that was your, that was your really your major problem, wasn't it? Yeah. That was the one that I couldn't, couldn't shake. And ultimately never really did. I, I, I did. By the time I got to Santiago, my mom brought down a, a spare shock. Um, but I barely rode after that. So I never got the the benefit of it. Yeah. Was that be because of just tough riding or are you running overloaded? Cause I know you sent a bunch of stuff home at one point. Yeah. It's, it's tough to say. I mean, it was, it was, it was the OEM shock with an upgraded spring around it. And we thought that would be enough. I think it was a combination of overloaded, um, a lot of washboard roads. And then I swear the problems presented themselves once we got into altitude. And I, I think that has something to do with, you know, whatever pressure seals are in there. I, I'm no mechanic and I don't pretend to be, um, but there's, there was something going on where the, the changing altitude and elevation that that's what was uh, that's an interesting playing theory. into that. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting theory. Sure. Less pressure pushing back. So easier to leak out. That would I mean, that's a, a basic thought that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, like I said, I, I don't, I don't know how they're, how they're built or anything like that. I just, I got to think that had something to do with it because the, the timing, you know, and, and, and Charlie, he too had, uh, his fork seals were going out right at the same time. So all at altitude. I don't know. It, that could be coincidence too. Yeah, of course. But I mean, but it does make you wonder. It's an interesting thought. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't thought of that before. Yeah. Um, how did the ride start off as far as going through the States? Did it, did it live up to what you expected? Yeah, the first day was pretty rainy. Um, 
we kind of expected that because we live here in the Northwest and, and we were leaving in April. So we knew what we were getting into there, but definitely exhilarating, you know, every rest stop we pulled into, you can imagine we were talking to, you know, we were going over to people and talking to them and telling them about this awesome trip we were taking off on, on day one. And, you know, <laughs> that, of course, we calmed down throughout, throughout the States as we get and, and different countries, <clears throat> excuse me. But as, as we got going, you know, I'd say the, the, uh, the lower States, we, we pretty much flew through them. You know, we got out of Washington as fast as we could. Uh, we spent the night in Eugene with, with my dad's friend. And then I think we camped in Big Sur and the next, the, I'd say it was the third or fourth night we were in, uh, Southern California. And it was there that we met up with, uh, someone who turned into be turned out to be a really important member of the trip. His name was Charlie. He was from Australia and we met him through an ADB rider. And, and that's where we met up with him. And your first border crossing going into Mexico. What was that like? It was a lot of fun. Um, it was quite an experience. We, we just rode right in and, 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 you know, leading up to this trip, you, you do all the research and you think, you think everything's going to be, I don't know. You have it in your head of, of, of what it's going to be. And, and it turned out we just went over a speed bump and we were in Mexico and that actually freaked us out because once we got in, you know, we didn't want to get to the Southern end of Mexico and find out that we'd miss some critical stamps or import paperwork or something like that. So after probably an hour of deliberation, we decided to go back across the border uh, back in the United States that day, which was its own debacle. You know, of course, it's really easy to get into Mexico. The line getting out of Mexico is quite a bit longer. Um, and, and the scrutiny you get at the border, too, going back <laughs> to the U.S. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and trying to explain, you know, we just left. We're coming back. You know, it's it, it's kind of fishy to take a two-hour trip to Mexico, right? It looks like you went down there, picked something up, and came back. Yeah. Um, so, so luckily, the border agent, he was... Once we explained the situation, he was, he just chuckled and let us through. And, and he explained to us, we, we'd missed a spot to pull over where we, we actually did on the second try and, and got the appropriate paperwork. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know if it helped at all because we still got burned leaving Mexico, getting into Belize a couple months later, maybe six weeks later, but, uh, we felt better the whole way. So that, <laughs> that it was worth it. I'm sure the border crossing saw what it was, as, as you mentioned, and had a chuckle out of it. But when you said you missed the turn, that was on the Mexico side. Yeah, it was just, you know, it was just a pull off, I'd say. And and you're right. I think it's on the Mexico side. And it was basically, you know, to get all your entry paperwork documented. Mm. And then you're into a new country. Is that where the adventure really started for you? I think so. You know, the first couple of days in the United States, there's definitely an exhilaration there, but it's all about getting across the border. That's what it felt like for me. Um, and so it, it certainly felt like we were there. You know, th this thing was really happening once once it was a foreign language. You know, the traffic's different. The, the culture's so different. Food's different. It, it was we were immersed at that point. And that's that's really what I was seeking from the start. And it's the three of you traveling together now. It's um, yourself and Charlie and Alex. Yeah. Yep. Charlie, we picked up in LA and he had his own really cool backstory. He was a, he did industrial mining out in uh, Perth, Australia. And so he was a couple of years older. He was a little bit wiser, but he was still, I, I'd say young and brazen like we were at the time. And, and uh, 
I don't know if he knew it or not, or if he'd admit it, but he, he took a bit of a leadership role. Just, just that Alex and I certainly respected him and, and anything that he said, I don't know that we would necessarily follow it, but it, it, it resonated with us. And, and, uh, for that reason, I think the three of us really got along well. You said wiser there. And, and, and back when you were 24 years old, looking at Charlie being a little bit older, what do you recognize as wisdom with him? You know, I think it's tough to say. He just, he was a little bit less distracted with, I don't know, at, at, at 24, it's kind of like any bright and shiny object can distract you is how I would describe it. Any, anything that sounds fun, exciting, um, you know, anything that might engage your, your testosterone level, you just pounce on it. Right. And, and Charlie just had that, you know, again, I, I think he was probably only 28 at the time. I'd have to go back and check, but, um, just a couple more years where you build in that, that, one or two seconds to wait and think about things before just jumping right into them. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, like I say, 28 is not, not an old man, but it was, it's a leap from 24. Certainly. Yeah. You know, it's just interesting that at 24, you recognize that and may not be able to put your finger on it back then, but you do recognize that there's, that there's a, a change there just in over those years. You didn't get in, you didn't get too far, I think in Mexico before you ran into trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably, you know, I don't, I don't know if youth played a factor in this, but it was, it was probably the third, fourth, fifth day. And, and that's, you know, the, yeah, I'm not going to pile on Alex here, but unfortunately he's, this is what happened to him. It, it was, it was probably the third. Hey, we're going to take a quick break here. I've got a couple things that I want to tell you about, but stay with us. When we come back, we've got a lot more and there's some twists and turns of this story that you will not want to miss. Stay with us. Nothing is worse than having cold feet on a motorcycle because the biggest problem with cold feet, as you probably already know, but I know from all outdoors activities, is that once they're cold, it's almost impossible to get them warm again without going inside somewhere for several hours. And that just doesn't work on a motorcycle. Your best chance at keeping your feet warm is not letting them get cold to begin with. Wear Pearly's Possum Socks. Pearly's Possum Socks are the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio. I've never, ever tried a pair of socks that are as good as Pearly's Possum Socks. It's a blend of merino wool and possum fur, and it's stitched in a way or made in a way, however they make it, in a way that to fit our foot and fit our boots as motorcyclists. They've got a couple of different designs for this. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is the website. I'm telling you, if you're not wearing them now, you should be. Don't and, and I, by the way, I wear them in the summertime as well because these go far beyond just keeping your feet warm. They wick away moisture. They don't stink. And you can wear them for a long time and they don't stink. Believe me, just take my word for that. I mean, without washing them. Anyway, pearlyspossumsocks.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearlyspossumsocks.com. 
Road Dog Publications specializes in motorcycle travel books. They have a slew of great books for you to read. Just drop by the website, rodogpub.com. The reason they have these great books is probably because of Mike Fitterling. Mike Fitterling is not only an author and a writer, he is the owner of Road Dog Pub, and he's an avid motorcyclist. I mean, this guy lives to ride. There's a ton of books there to read, all very high quality. You can buy the books anywhere. You can get them at Barnes & Noble or, or wherever you're buying books. But drop by their website. It's RoadDogPub.com. And let Mike know that you heard him here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's RoadDogPub.com. You probably already understand how important it is to use your foot pegs for controlling your motorcycle. What you may not realize is just how much advantage you will have with IMS Products foot pegs. IMS Products is very particular on how they design and build everything. They make a lot of products. And you notice I said design because IMS designed these foot pegs specifically for adventure riding. These are designed to shed debris, hold your boots planted without tearing them apart, they're also designed correctly so that when you install a wider peg, you don't ruin the boot sole angle for your shifter or cramp the brake lever. None of this you're going to notice until you actually use these pegs on your motorcycle, and then you'll understand what the design is all about. IMS Products has been around since 1976. Their pegs are made in the USA from CAST-certified 17-4 stainless steel. They're warranted for life. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio, imsproducts.com. Yeah, yeah, and that's probably, you know, I don't, I don't know if youth played a factor in this, but it was... It was probably the third, fourth, fifth day. And, and that's, you know, the, yeah, I'm not going to pile on Alex here, but unfortunately he's, this is what happened to him. It, it was, it was probably the third day. He, he did a, laid it down low side and, and he was off on a little tractor uh, ditch run on the side of the highway testing out, you know, you start these trips and you think you've got a, you're riding a dirt bike and you quickly learn these things are, they need to go 20,000 miles on the, you, you better stay on the highway when you can. And, and, the, and the lesson there for Alex was he low sided the, the bike in the mud and, you know, not much bad stuff happened with it. Uh, he had to bang out a pannier a little bit, but, but nothing beyond that. But it was the next day, I think, that, that he actually had a pretty, pretty bad uh, crash. And Neither of us were there to witness it, but but in hindsight, what we pieced together and 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 what Alex told me, he thinks he may have fallen asleep after after we gassed up in a, out of some some petrol cans on a long stretch. It was it was a stretch in Baja where I don't remember the mileage, but it's at least three hundred miles between uh, the gas stations. So you got you got to fill up somewhere along the way, and and. We did that. I think we got a, we got a meal. So, you know, bellies are full. It's a hot day in Baja. And, and he thinks, you know, and he, this is not like him, but he thinks he may have fallen asleep. And, and at that very moment, he went off the side of a curve and, and probably dropped about 10 feet and, and landed in the sand. Um, and, and his bike looked like it was totaled by the time we got back to him. It was, uh, oh, an American couple pulled up before beside Charlie and me while we were waiting down the road and, and told us there'd been an accident back there. So we, we hurried back and, and that's where we found Alex kind of, um, you know, 
he, he was wrecked. I, I'm, I'm again at 24, it was kind of, I knew it was serious. And now that I'm, I'm 35, I, I'm, I'm impressed he survived. He was welted up all over his body. Bruises were starting to develop. He was definitely concussed. He didn't know we were in Mexico. He knew me. I think he knew who Charlie was. That day we were riding with uh, with a girl named Sarah too, another person we'd met up with in LA. She was only with us for a short time, but uh, he didn't recognize her. And and it was a very scary scene. His tires were pretzeled. You know, his, his forks were bent. Uh, it was it was a full scale crash. Uh, when you, when you roll up to that, is your first thought the trip is over? My first thought was, oh, here we go again. Alex is you know costing us an hour or two as we <laughs> kind of put him you know get him back upright and put him back together. <laughs> and it wasn't until I pulled up and actually saw the gravity of the situation that you know I don't I don't think the thought crossed my mind that the trip was over. It, it definitely helped to have Charlie there and and. Uh, you know, because it, it, at least if it had just been Alex and me and he's gone, I don't know. I don't know how I would have felt, but but at least it felt like only one of us had gone down and, and the the remainder of the party could could carry forth in, in some capacity. And, and we still had to figure out what that would be. Um, but, you know, it was it was funny, too, because. Alex had told us numerous times and, and, we, and we'd agree on this. I, I shouldn't put it all on Alex, but there, there was an agreement in place that we were a loosely held unit. And, and if someone had to bow out for whatever reason, um, no one was going to abandon them, but it was okay for the rest of the group to keep going. And, and we'd actually talked about that just the night prior, kind of triggered by Alex's, you know, small laydown incident. Um, and, and so it's very timely to have had that conversation. Mm, and Alex was all for that. He was, he was pushing for that as well. Like total agreement. He was, yeah. I, you know, obviously I don't think he was thrilled to be. So what we ended up doing is we, we got him to a hospital that afternoon. We got his bike back to a mechanic at the nearest town. And, uh, we stayed there a day or two with him as things kind of settled down. And, you know, he, he was, he clearly became stable. Uh, the mechanic gave him a pretty good prognosis. I think the bike would have been totaled in, in the United States, but here at Baja, this guy was able to put it back together. It was going to take, you know, a week or 10 days. And so we agreed that we were going to keep going. Alex was going to catch up and, and he was on board with that. And, and I was appreciative of that because on a trip like this, you want to get away from the border. You know, you want to feel like you're making progress. And, and I guess in hindsight, it sounds kind of crass that, you know, we couldn't wait seven, 10 days for him. But for some reason at the time, it was the logical decision and, and, and he was on board with it too. How was he going to catch up though? If, if you keep going, we weren't going too fast. Uh, we were, you know, we wanted to make time, but we definitely, we'd stick. That was what was really great about doing this trip at the time that I did it is I didn't have any time constraints. There was no job to come home to, uh, no commitment to, you know, family or anything like that. So I could, it could be a two-year trip if I wanted to. It could have been a five-year trip. It, it turned out to be nine months, but um, there was no urgency to, you know, to that we had to be anywhere at any time. So we kept making progress, but we we stayed in Baja the whole time while Alex recovered. Mm. And and what are you doing as you're traveling along? What are you stopping at? Really, whatever caught our eye. Uh, you know, certainly. Any, any expansive views, beaches, things like that, um, taco stands, 
just, you know, any little town, we try to go through the main strip and, and, and see what that's all about. And then really we, you know, the weather played into it a lot. By the time the, the heat of the day came on, um, we would often bow out and, and go find some air conditioning. What's the story about the bartender, Tim? Yeah. Tim was a Canadian bartender at a town called Loretto. And, and, you know, he kind of, he reinforced some of the lessons that I think I, I knew I was seeking. Um, basically we, we pulled into Loretto. It was, I'd say it was the, it was the first stop after, after we left Alex and, and we found a place to camp on the beach and there was a bar there and the bartender's name was Tim. He's a Canadian guy, probably at his late sixties, something like that. And he just started serving us drinks one after another out of the, out of the cooler there, uh, until probably three or four in the morning. And then that wasn't typical of us to, to stay up that late, but Tim just loved what we were doing and, and he wanted to talk and, and, and it wasn't, he wasn't professing to us either. I mean, we just really connected that night, Charlie, Tim and I, um, you know, he was just in love with getting caught up in the moment that we were having and, and kind of being along for the ride for one night. And at the same time, we were taking lessons from Tim. Um, you know, everything he said just really landed. And, and I think most importantly, it really resonated with us was, you know, he told us to slow down. He said, don't, he looked at us, he saw our age and he said, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to go 85 miles an hour, you know, around every corner, you're trying to max it out. And, and he said, this is, this is a different country, you know, and everywhere south of here is different. You, you need to slow down. You need to be careful and protect yourselves. And um, that served me well hearing that lesson and, and having it be so timely after, after Alex went down. Because Alex is a good writer. He was talking, Tim, he, he was talking about safety, was he? That, that's what he's telling you. He's not so much saying slow down to see the sights. He's saying for safety reasons. For safety, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there were many incidents along the way where, where he was right. You know, in the United States, you could take take a corner at, at a certain speed. And here in, you know, whether it's Mexico, Peru, uh, where have you, you might take that so- corner at that speed. And it turns out there's a semi passing another semi, you know, right around the corner, completely unsafely. But, you know, that's OK in those countries. It's 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 what they do. And it's truly you're, you're in the wrong as the, as the foreigner, you know, who's, who's riding at those speeds. Did Alex catch up with you? Yeah, he did. He was caught up probably, probably, I think right on time, a week or 10 days later or something like that. Oh, wow. And his bike got put back together. Cause you said like, by the, the sounds of what you're describing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, at home it, w- it would have been a write-off. Nobody's going to bother with that. But how do they put that together? Where do they get the parts? <laughs> I just chalk it up to Baja mechanics, um, you know, and, and I'll say any, any Latin American mechanic we met along the way, they were able to do things, you know, it, it, nothing against American mechanics either. But I, I think the, 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 the typical approach here is what parts do we need to replace uh, and, and how soon can we get them? And, and down there it was, you know, how can we rebuild those parts how can we take them off a different motorcycle and make them work on this one? We had n- numerous incidences of that where, um, you know, that was the case. Uh, later on in Panama, I had my bike put together with, they took, uh, my, my stator failed and they took a, a piece of a Suzuki 
marine engine and, and put it in and it works. It, it, I think the bike would still run without the carburetor issue I'm having. So uh, I, w- with Alex's bike, I think it, you know, I think they had a lot of spare parts laying around from, from the Baja races that they have down there and a lot of expertise in putting these bikes back together. And I think that, that, that worked out really well. Yeah, we, we've definitely become more parts replacers, certainly um, in, in the Western world, I guess you could say, parts replacers rather than fixtures. And that's happened over a short period of time, too. I mean, it wasn't that long ago we were repairing things, but now it's uh, it's all replacement, which is why things get written off so quickly. And the expertise isn't there either, you know, as far as straightening things and, and fixing things. So it's um, it's always interesting to hear those stories you're headed for the for the Stallrat, I believe, to to make the crossing through the Darien Gap. Did, did anything happen between that and the Stallrat? Oh, quite a bit. You know, we, we went through all Central America, and you know, I, I just think of I, I'd say that was probably probably three months total in Central America. And, and I just think of those as really fun, loose times. Um, I was, we stayed mostly at hostels and that was my first experience with hostels. I didn't realize that there are these international communities out there of, you know, just everybody on the same page, you know, seeking good times and, and, and sharing stories. So that was really eye opening for me and really fueled a lot of excitement the whole way down. Um, met a lot of really fun and cool people, uh, something that's unique, I think about Central America, but I know it plays out in every part of the world is, is you'll meet certain groups of people or individuals in one hostel. And then, you know, a month later, three countries later, you meet the same people or person at a different one. And you've had all these different experiences and you come together and you share what, what you loved and what you didn't. And the beauty of the motorcycles was we could buzz off and do anything that anyone recommended. It wasn't hard to do that. Um, so it was just this time of great exploration. At one point you, you met a rider that was, he had been out on the trip for a while. I don't, I don't know how long, but he was fatigued mentally and going home. Can you talk about that? Yeah. He, we met him at the border of, or just beyond the border, uh, leaving Belize and getting into Guatemala. And, and just as you said, he, he was on a, he was on a BMW and he'd been doing it, you know, clearly for years. And, and, you know, we were still really energetic. And as soon as we saw him, we flagged him down and, you know, we just wanted to connect. We wanted to share stories and, and, and he was not cold, but he just didn't have much to say. And, and he was on his way to, I think, Belize city to fly out and go home. He'd had a parasite that had been dragging him down for the last couple months. And he just, he just said it, you know, it was such a foreign concept to me, but he, basically the fire in his heart was out for, for adventure motorcycle riding at that point. Uh, you know, he wasn't trying to be pessimistic or anything. He just, he was on a very different end of the spectrum of a trip like that. And at the time it, it, it just, I, I couldn't understand it. I thought it must've been, you know, w- what's wrong with this guy? Well, he's doing it wrong. And, uh, you know, we can get to that later too, but coming full circle by the time I got to South America, I started to understand some of the elements that, that he had, um, that, that he was experiencing that, that, you know, it, it, a trip changes over time. Changes you, the person. I think so. I think so. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, the, the changes that I experienced, I wouldn't put on the places I was at. It, it's just, it's, it's the time on the road. It's the, it's the constant, 
it's the constant, it's, it's everything that you wanted the motorcycle trip to be over time. And this is not a complaint, but it, it, the, 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 the thrill of it sometimes wears off. And, and, and then I started to find that by the time I got to South America, what had made the trip so enticing, all the new experiences, the, the foreign languages, a lot of that becomes repetitive and, and work sometimes. And, and, you know, there were, there were elements where the new bright, shiny object by the end of my trip was the idea of going home and having a routine and waking up in the same bed every day. <laughs> and, you know, just all the stuff that I wanted to escape from the start. And, and, you know, now that I'm back, of course, I think it'd be fun to go out on the road again. But it, it was, it was very interesting meeting that, that guy early on our trip and then being able to recall that experience as I started to feel some of the same things toward the end of my trip that ultimately drove me to hang it up and go home. What was the stall rat experience like for you? It was really good. It was, especially after, you know, four months on the road of, of you're the captain and, and you're responsible for every, you know, mile that goes by. It was really good to let someone else take the wheel. Captain Ludwig, uh, he was, a uh, he, he was amazing. He, he entered, we met him. He was hanging himself off the, off the bow. He's wearing tidy whities only the whole time I knew him. And, uh, you know, he was everywhere. He was, he was, he was just master and commander. I mean, that's the only way I can think to put it. He would dive under the ship to, you know, to work on things. He was up cooking. He'd, he'd be at the helm. I, he, he was just everywhere. He, he had a great crew of, of international folks that, that weren't originally sailors. He took them in and, and, and gave them this experience from my knowledge, at least. And, and he just showed us one of the best weeks of my life. You, um, you did run into trouble at one point in, in a hotel you were staying at. Can, can you talk about that story? Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, there's a lot to get into, but basically once once we got off the stall rat, we, we landed in Cartagena, uh, and then that's where Charlie departed and he went south to, uh, Medellin and Alex and I were going to follow. We were just a couple of days behind because we were getting some work done at the, the local Suzuki shop. And so, um, what ended up happening was as, as we left Cartagena a couple of days later, we were a couple of towns outside or, you know, we, we departed and we're just a couple towns later. And that's where Alex was going to pull into a gas station off a highway. And as he did, he crossed the oncoming lane because the gas station was on the left. And here a box truck was passing illegally from behind and it hit him in the back of the bike. And, and he went down hard. Um, and, and poor Alex, this was, you know, like I said, he's a, he's a very good rider and safe individual. And this was his third, his third accident. And, and probably, uh, the big one, uh, he broke his ankle cause he, he low sided and the bike landed, the frame landed on his ankle, mm -hmm. uh, skidded to the sidewalk, you know, ambulance showed up talking to police. It was, it was the whole, the whole scenario, you know, playing out in real time and, uh, you know, crowds of people, but luckily we did get him. He got to the hospital. I stayed with the bike, got it got it impounded and um, talk a little bit about the, being in the hospital because you ran into a bit of an insurance thing here. Yeah. Yeah, we did. The, uh, the, the box trucks, the, the drivers 
lawyer showed up and and he was trying to tell one story to the police that, you know, again, my Spanish is OK on, on a day like this. It, it's the first thing to go, though, after the adrenaline wears off and, and you know, the heat kicks in and, and you, you get to be pretty tired having had talked to all these strangers and, and police officers and, you know, hospital workers. But I, I overheard the the um, the lawyer talking to the police and explaining that it was Alex's fault that this had happened and, you know, really laying it out there. And, and that's where I, you know, I don't usually get confrontational, but I had to in this case was was get right in the in that guy's face and interrupt him. And, and luckily I'd built a good relationship with the police at that point to where I was able to call him out and, and tell him that's not what happened. And he was also trying to get us in a, the, the cheapest hotel in town, which, you know, as I'll get to, it turns out this town wasn't that safe uh, to begin with. And, and so luckily we, we did get in a decent hotel. Um, I'm not sure that that played out well for us anyway, but, but, uh, yeah, that guy, that guy was trying to, he was doing his job looking out for his client and his company. I'll put it that way. He, he was also using language as, as his leverage, wasn't he? He was, he was assuming that you couldn't understand what he's saying. And he's saying, you know, these guys don't know it. They can't speak the, the language. So they're, they're no, they're of no yeah. use. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, there's, there's elements where you want to play that card a little bit when you're a foreigner. Um, it, it can play to your advantage when people think that you can't understand them or, or that you can't communicate with them. And, and at this time I was mostly trying to communicate because I wanted to, you know, tell people who Alex was, you know, it, it, medical history that I knew about and where we were going, where, we, where we were coming from. And that made it tough because, you know, we don't have an address. We're not, we're not locals. We don't know how to reach our family. Um, just, just a lot of, you know, if you've ever been through hospital intake, it's, it's very different when you're, when you're traveling, I'll, I'll put it that way. But yeah, to your point, he he was assuming that we couldn't understand anything. And luckily, that's right when I started listening to him and I was able to chime in and let him know that, you know, we at least we at least had our ear to the ground and, and you know, we weren't pushovers. He obviously knew that that he's that, that his client is at fault and is going to end up paying for things because he did try to put you in that cheap hotel. Then um, then you managed to get in a, in a good hotel. And, and how did that pan out? Yeah. So we had the police take us to the, I don't know if it was the nicest hotel in town, but it was, it was called Caribbean gold. And they were very proud of it when they took us there. Uh, it was really funny too. The police officer was pointing out his favorite strip clubs along the way as we got there. So I, I had a, I got a kick out of that and told him we'd go there someday. I don't think we ever did, but, um, yeah, hotel Caribbean gold, we checked in and it was a fine hotel. You know, we'd stayed in, in some pretty grungy places throughout the throughout the trip. But that is where, so, you know, with Alex recovering for, for the next, he probably needed four weeks, but he definitely needed two weeks um, of really not moving around at all. And, and that's, that's where we spent most of the next two weeks was in that hotel room. And in that time we developed, you know, kind of naturally, we were staying up till probably 3am uh, just watching TV, you know, downloading movies. Uh, it just, doing what 24 year olds did at that time. I think we weren't, we weren't going out and partying anything like that. It was just, we kind of fell into a lapse of stay up late, wake up late. All we did was eat and sleep. It'd be boring. It was boring. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't know, we became night owls 
And uh, it was around 2 a.m. one night where I we were out of water. And and of course, we just we knew the routine. You go downstairs to the lobby and you go get your water there. And and that's where I, I went down and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd done it. I'd done it almost every night. I went downstairs. I was going to go talk to the bellhop down there. I think his name was Antonio. And I found him down there and he was talking to two other individuals and uh, there or excuse me, three other individuals. And they kind of, you know, in hindsight, I could see it all again and I, I could I could portray it as it actually happened. I, I was I very innocently didn't see any of this coming. But these three people kind of quartered him against the wall. And that should have been my cue to to leave and walk away or, or call for help. Um, but instead, I didn't I didn't understand it. I was probably dreary from being a night owl at that point. And I just went over to the the counter where you get the water and I just decided to wait patiently. I, I kind of, in my head, he was talking to other guests and when he's done with them, he'll come talk to me. And so I was sitting there staring at the, you know, the candy road, thinking I was going to buy some candy too when he was available to sell me the water. And that's when one of those individuals, this guy in a cowboy hat and a purple shirt came up and, and he just grabbed me by the arm and he shoved a pistol into my rib cage and- wow and said, we're going outside time to go right now. And, and it was, yeah, that was, that was the scariest part of the whole trip for me. You're blindsided with this. You had no idea that it's, that it's coming. And so what, what's your feeling? Like, what do you do? What's your, what's your reaction? Yeah, it was certainly a, a fight and flight reaction. It, it was, I just needed to be out of there. That's all I knew. And, and so it, it was just kind of on one hand, I turned to him and, and kind of did the whole tranquilo thing, you know, try to diffuse the situation. And I just kept trying to walk and pull away. And and the, the more I pulled, the tighter his grip became and the more he kind of became forceful with me. And so, you know, at, at that point, it kind of... I still knew I needed to get away. I mean, it was, it was all just an effort to get away. Uh, we, we never had much of a negotiation period. It very quickly devolved into, uh, you know, kind of a wrestling match where I'm just trying to slip away from him. And of course he brought over his two other goons, uh, one guy and one girl. And, um, you know, as I tried to slip away and I quickly ended up on my butt, um, you know, they start, doing the normal, you know, what, what you might imagine. They're kind of kicking at me, uh, trying to pin me down. And, and as, as this is all going on, I just, I kept inching my way toward the stairway, you know, one foot at a time as I get out of one grasp, I kind of, you know, twist to the side and I'm that much closer. And I probably had 30 feet in total from where I started to get there. Um, there were moments where, where, you know, it got real scary. They, at one point they, he pistol whipped me right across the head. And that, that really, you know, put a thud in my will for a moment, you know, just kind of dazed me pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, but then over time, like I said, it was just foot by foot. And there was one moment where they kind of, they, they held me up against the wall or kind of slammed me up against the wall. And it was just this, this brief moment where I could swim between them and I grabbed the banister or the stairway and, and, you know, in just an instant, I was five steps above them and they were standing below me and we both just kind of looked at each or, you know, I looked at them, they looked at me and then I just flew up the stairs and, and never heard from them again. But they have a gun. Are you, are you not worried at that point that they're going to shoot you? I mean, it, there again, in hindsight, 
very, very worried and, and, and surprised. The gun didn't seem to play that much of a, of a role in my decision-making. It, it seemed better to be away from them than to be near them with the gun. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think, you know, <laughs> that doesn't answer your question. The, interestingly, I, I never, you know, I've said this before, if they'd put the gun to my head, I probably would have reacted a little differently. There, there was, they didn't seem like they wanted to kill the gringo is is the way I'll put it. It seemed like it was kind of, let's, let's get him outside. Let's see where this goes rather than, you know, we're going to do this and we're willing to pull the trigger if we need to. And, and, and so there was something subtly playing out there where, where I, I, I could feel that I didn't think they were going to shoot and that it was a bit of a show. Um, that turned out to be the case. And I hope that was the case from the start. Um, but, but yeah, you know, you don't, there, there wasn't time to calculate the risk and, and, and there was definitely no, no moment to decide, do I, do I fight this or do I play along? It's just kind of, I tried to get away. It quickly devolved into a wrestling match. And luckily they never, you know, they never pinned me down and put the gun to my head. I think I would have stopped at that point and come up with a different plan. But I'm sure the thought of them taking you outside, I mean, when they say they want to take you outside, it's like, come on, that's the, that's the last thing. I mean, you know how that could end up. Yeah, exactly. 2, 3 a.m. outside with these guys, yeah. you know, th- that's where I thought I might never be seen again, you know, or I don't know. Yeah, you just, they're in total control at that point. Because I was screaming in the hotel lobby room, um, you know, I, I, was, I was making a ruckus and I felt like I had more control, more leverage in there fighting back. What sort of impact did that have on on the both of you? Because Charlie's in the in the in the room, he's laid up from this accident, and you've run into trouble there, and and now you have this happen. What happened? Like, how did you guys feel about that? Yeah, so so you're right. It was, it was Alex in the room, and and he had his headphones in because, like I said, we were just you know pirating movies the whole time we were there. <laughs> well, it's like a movie, and, uh, <laughs> you know, that's like a movie shot. You just, he's sitting there with his headphones on, having a great time, and you're fighting for your life. That's right. That's right. I, so I, I flew through the door and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm covered in blood cause it was a head wound and, and they bleed a lot. And so, you know, just blood streaming down my forehead. Um, and he, and he sprang into action then. And, um, it was, you know, uh, it, the first couple hours, the, the, the first 15 minutes of being in that room was honestly the hardest, the hardest part that I remembered at the time. And, and, and that was, you know, Finally, the adrenaline started to wear off and I realized how scared I was from the experience and how vulnerable I was. You know, at, at the time, you're just, I, I would equate it to, you know, because I ski so much, it's just like skiing down a mountain. You just navigate the turns in front of you. And then that's what I was doing downstairs in the lobby. Uh, it wasn't until afterward that I realized just just what was at stake and and, you know, how intense that really was. And, and, you know, just some of the points that you brought up, Jim, some of the, you know, the, the, what was on the line in in the decisions that I didn't even know I was making. Um, so definitely found myself very scared, um, vulnerable, frustrated, kind of angry with the world. It it was one of the first times that something really bad like that had happened to me. You know, I, I, I'd always been able to kind of work on a mantra that, you know, if you're good to people, people will be good to you follow the golden rule, mm-hmm. things will go your way. And, and that was the first time that out of blue, you know, someone just came up and tried to attack me. And 
And, you know, I definitely put myself in a situation where I made that, you know, much more likely to happen or easy for them. But it, it was, it was a wake up call for me. Um, you know, pretty quickly thereafter, we took a very optimistic approach to it and that we were, we were kind of thrilled that it happened. You know, it, we were, <laughs> we were going on this trip for adventure. Right. And, and, and so this was like, you know, wait till everyone hears this was kind of how we tried to react after the fact. And, and that was fun too. Um, but, but I've honestly found, you know, since that day, it, it's, it's taken months and years to work through some of the true impact of that. I, I came home, I think the rest of the trip, I wasn't, it, it, I was just, you know, still in a bit of survival mode as, as you are the entire time on a trip like that. Um, but when I got home, whether it was the trip itself or specifically that incident, there were, there were some issues of, you know, I, I was uncomfortable at times once I got home, just, you know, a little bit unsettled and, and, you know, loud noises would kind of scare me out of the blue things like that. Um, that I think, I think tie back in particular to that incident. After that, when you meet other travelers throughout your trip and you inevitably reiterate this story, what, how do they respond to that? You know, I didn't talk about it a lot. Um, I definitely told Charlie when I met up with him because, because I did meet up with Charlie shortly after that. And that was its own kind of separate story. Alex's girlfriend flew down uh, shortly after his crash. And then they decided because he couldn't put her two up on the bike anymore with his broken ankle, they were going to go bus it through Peru from there. So I needed to find a way to continue on on the motorcycle. I wasn't too keen on solo riding at that point, uh, especially because I just had my incident in that hotel lobby. And so I, I caught back up with Charlie. Uh, he was a couple of days right ahead, still in Colombia. And, and to answer your question, it was really good to tell the story to Charlie. Um, when I met up with him, he was, he was riding with a friend of his named Andy at that point, who was also uh, from Australia. He'd fl flown in specifically to ride with Charlie just on a shorter version of the same trip. Ended up getting to know Andy really well too. Uh, he was a great guy, but, uh, telling them was great. But as, as far as telling the, the other travelers in the hostels, I didn't, I didn't share the story a lot with them. And, and, and part of it was over the course of, of nine months and, and, and speaking to, you know, getting to know our backpackers and hostels and, and things like that, there just became a growing divide. And, and it, I don't want to say that we would look down on them or anything like that, but, but they just didn't have the same experiences that we were with, with the motorcycles, you know, and, and I, the way I like to put it is, you know, they'd, they'd get on a bus and go to the next country and they'd wake up bright eyed, bushy tailed, and they just want to dive right in. And, and for at this point of the trip, now that we're into the, the mountainous, you know, Colombia, Ecuador, getting toward Peru for us to do that same jaunt, it was a three or four day escapade through the wind and the rain and the, and the altitude and the cold and, it, and, and so we were just, we were kind of on different trajectories, even though we were occupying the same space, uh, you know, ourselves and the backpackers, at least that's, that's how I looked at it. And so by this, by that point in the trip, uh, one, I didn't want to relive the experience very much Two, I couldn't really explain what happened. I was still figuring that out myself. And, and, and three, I just, you know, these people in Central America, I was connecting with them much more than I was in, in South America, interestingly. 
And I'm not sure why that is. I think just over time, it became apparent that the challenges that that I faced were different than the ones that they faced. And that's not to diminish a backpacker's challenge either, because I experienced that toward the end of the trip. Uh, my mom flew down and and uh, I parked the bike for a little bit. And and to be a backpacker is is also very tough. Um, you know, navigating the bus schedules and the taxi cabs, all the transportation becomes difficult in its own right because you're beholden to other people. Mm-hmm. But it's on on the same page. If if you're responsible for your own transportation, as a motorcycler, this is this is part of the draw. You never get to have someone else take you there, and and that's that's exactly why I hit the road. That's that's what was such a thrill about it. But it you you, you find that you know it it does wear you down a little bit over time in a good way. It, like like I said, it's, it's it's certainly not a regret or anything like that. But but it it, it changed the connection that I had to backpackers over time. Mm-hmm. In Bolivia, you, um, you had a, a situation where you couldn't get fuel. Yeah, that's right. They would not sell fuel in, I believe it was La Paz to, uh, vehicles with foreign plates. And <laughs> that's just bizarre. I mean, so what are you supposed to do at that point? It was bizarre. It was. And, and I think the reason was, I think it was Bolivia had much cheaper gas than the surrounding countries. And, 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 and because I'm, I'm no geopolitical scholar here, but I think it was because they had ties to Venezuela and, and there was a, you know, they had access to less expensive gas. And so the, the neighboring uh, residents from other countries would flood the borders, buy up all the cheap gas and take it home. And so they, they came out with a law as it was, as it was explained to me, that no foreigners could buy gas in certain areas. And, and there was an exemption to answer your question. There was supposed to be an exemption in place where you could fill out some paperwork and explain that you're, you're not from one of these neighboring countries. You're, you're passing through and you, you actually need this gas to, to get onto where you're going. Of course, you know, as it was explained to me, they never came out with that paperwork. They passed the law and then they never got around to coming out with the exemption. The government so, didn't. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's, I'm not here to critique any foreign governments or anything like that. I know it's much more complicated than whatever I heard at the time and, and have not researched since. But that was the story they gave me, and I'll I'll stick to it for for this interview. But but yeah, to 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 finally answer your question, the classic scenario where we we found an old man who had some cans in his garage, and and he he didn't fill up our tanks, but. We paid him a pretty penny and got a couple of gallons and were able to get out of there. And then on the outskirts, we found gas stations were willing to sell to us. Mm. And, and you also had some, uh, a, a bit of a bonus because it was election day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was great too. We, uh, you know, so the, the first experience not being able to buy gas, very terrible experience for being a foreigner in Bolivia. And it was the next day was election day. And it was a great experience to be a foreigner in Bolivia because that day all the roads were closed to citizens. And so as, as Charlie put it at one point, the liquor stores were closed too. And I, he said something along the lines of keep the population uh, immobile and sober for election day, which, which is really, <laughs> really stuck with me the whole time. Uh, but yeah, what that led to was we had the roads to ourselves and we covered uh, a few hundred miles, only passing one ambulance the whole time. Uh, there were checkpoints along the way where the police would let us through. 
And it wasn't until the very end of the day, for some reason, the final officer wouldn't let us through. Um, but we were, we were just outside of the, the Cerro Rico mining town at that point, And we were happy to hang out in the sun and wait a couple more hours for him to let us through so we could go find a hotel. Your goal was to ride around the world. And at this point, how long you've been on the road? I'd say at that point, probably six and a half months, maybe seven. So where does it go from here? Did, did you, did you think of how we're going to ride the world and where you're going to ship your bike next? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. You know, by the time we had left from Seattle to, to start the trip, we knew that we just didn't have the funds to go around the world. And so we'd, we'd cut that short and it had become a trip to Ushuaia, kind of the, the classic, uh, like many of your, your guests have described before. And, and then we also thought we were going to ride the whole way home too. And we, we kind of had a rough timeline of nine months, but like I said, there was nothing, there was no deadline. So you know, here it took us a full nine months to get down there uh, in the end. And, and, and from the onset, we thought that we were going to go down and come back in that time frame. So it, it was always a moving target along the way to figure out what this trip was going to be. And that was kind of hard to hard to compromise sometimes. As you can imagine, you, you build these trips up in your head, at least I did, as, as to what it should be. And and as you start to fall back from that original plan, you, you feel like you're there, there's an element of failure there. And, and that makes, it, it took me a while to wrestle with that to ultimately come to the conclusion that that's the whole point of the adventure anyway, is that you can't plan these things down to the T and, and the, the, the whole, the whole lesson to be learned, you know, the, the, the enlightenment that we're all seeking going out there, at least for me, it was that it was that you, you just, you need to let it carry you a little bit and you need to go with the flow and be open to whatever is presented to you. And, and ultimately for me, that was, I ended up getting to Santiago. That's where my mom flew down. I spent two or three weeks traveling with her over bus. At that same time, Charlie's brother flew in and they rented a, a pickup truck and they drove down to Patagonia. And so when my mom flew home, I flew down to Charlie and did the rest of the trip with him. We, we drove from uh, Punta Arenas down to Ushuaia and then all the way back up to Santiago. So I was able to still say that I did it all overland, but I didn't ride it all overland. And at first that really stuck with me. It really bugged me that, you know, like I said, I'd made this big compromise, but uh, with some years behind me now, or the, you know, the trip in the rearview mirror, I'm I'm much more okay with that, and and actually proud to have pivoted like that, and and had such a good time, and 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 let the you know ultimately it's the people on this trip that that I remember the most, and and it was it was being able to be with them as you know my mom, Charlie, his brother, uh, it, taking that turn and going down that path. <clears throat> I'm really appreciative of it. Why did Charlie go by vehicle? Like as you were out with your mom, you said that he went by vehicle uh, down to Ushuaia. Why by vehicle? Well, four wheel drive or four wheel vehicle? Yeah, yeah. So he, he just rented one. He did a long term rental, but it was it was his brother had flown in, and there was another. His brother brought a friend uh, named Greg. So suddenly there were three of them and only one motorcycle. And for that reason, you know, I think Charlie too. I I won't speak for him, but. I think at that time he was ready to, you know, get off the bike for a little bit. Um, 
get in a nice enclosed cab. And, and I remember him telling me as he was inviting me down to Punta Arenas, he said, you know, if I were you, Tom, I wouldn't want to do that ride that we just drove um, on a motorcycle. He said it was rainy, windy, you know, not a lot of accommodations along the way, a lot of stretches with, with nothing in between. And he said it was, you know, he was appreciative of having the, the truck the whole time. It's interesting. You, you mentioned about failure. You were saying about, you know, you have a certain feeling like you've failed on the trip and you, and you, you said the word compromise, which, which sort of caught me. It's like you learned that the trip is not pure, no matter what happens, that there's compromises to be made. And that kind of makes the, the trip pure, doesn't it? You know, in the end, because you're saying when you're looking back now, it seems complete, but at the time you felt like you weren't really doing it properly. Yeah, that's exactly right. At the time, it felt like you got so far and you gave up, right? You left the bike and and now you're getting on an airplane and the whole point was supposed to be overland and there was, you know, two wheels and suddenly you're flying a thousand miles and you're going to get in a truck and do the rest of the way in a truck. And, you know, that, that really, that really was, was hard to, hard to get comfortable with, uh, especially because you put in so much time and effort. And, and like I said, you built it up in your head like that, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, where I ultimately landed with it was that's just a continuation of what I was initially seeking, you know, that you want to go into the, you know, the, the great blue beyond and see what's on the other side. And, and sometimes it's not a motorcycle ride there, you know, it, it's okay for that to be when you get there, you find out that it's easier to take a plane somewhere or it makes more sense, or that's how you continue to carry on the relationship that you've established when you were on the motorcycle. Uh, There's just so many factors that, that, you know, I I would encourage anyone who's going into a trip like this, just, just be very open-minded that it, you know, as much as if you're like me, the idea of riding a motorcycle to the ends of the earth was very badass. But by the time you get there, your mindset does change a little bit and that's okay. And, and I think if you can be open to whatever's, whatever options are presented to you, it can take your trip to the next level. You know, as, as I mentioned before, I don't know that I was necessarily jaded by the end of my trip, but I was ready for something different. And that's not to say that I'm done with adventure motorcycle riding. It was just, I'd fully exercised that, that need at that moment. And, and yeah, getting on a plane, sounded like a breeze, sounded like a very relaxing continuation to the trip. And that's why I did it, even though it was kind of tough pill to swallow at the time. Mm-hmm. After you get over thinking it through, then you decide, yeah, this, this is the right thing. Yeah. And it was because, you know, to, to Charlie's point, I don't know that I could have gone all the way to Patagonia as a solo writer. You know, I, I, I might've not had the energy. Around that time, you, you had your first feelings of wanting to get home because you mentioned this earlier when you were talking about something. You said you got to the point where you you were looking forward to those mundane things that you thought you loathed so much. Yeah, that's right. Even just having food in the fridge, you know, or or, or knowing what meal you were ordering, what you know, what the plate was going to look like when it showed up. Um, exercise, ex- my my physical health did not, that's something that I didn't prepare for on the motor, going into the motorcycle trip. I went from, you know, delivering refrigerators, which is a very hands-on, you know, 
I was in peak physical health when I left on the trip and I probably lost 25 pounds the whole way down. Um, being a pretty thin person to start with, it was, it was just pure muscle that I lost. And you can imagine it's just cause you're eating whatever the fast food available is in the country that you're in. You don't know what you're getting. You're getting, a, <laughs> at least in my case, there's plenty of travelers diarrhea throughout the trip. And, and, uh, yeah, by the end, you, you, you know, very little exercise too, because you're just sitting there getting whittled down on a bike uh, for 20,000 miles. And I feel like I must've lost an inch just from, you know, riding that suspension the whole time. Um, so that, that was another thing that wanted, made me want to drive home or drove me to want to get home, you know, starting to get some back issues, um, you know, just didn't, was starting to not feel like myself physically. At that time, around that time, you said you were done pushing your luck and, and sort of just wanted to live. Did that change for you in life? Like, was that a growing up? Was that a, was that going through a door at that point? Or was that just a result of being on the road for so long? I think probably both. I mean, I I think I was able to go through that door because of being on the road so long. And, and, and and you're right. It was, it was kind of like, i I'd been lucky enough to have the opportunity to just do whatever I wanted to do for as long as I wanted to do it. And and that turned out to be a nine month motorcycle ride to South America. And, you know, at that age, at that time, starting off with $28,000, it felt like a blank check. And and in those countries, it pretty much was, I, I it was, you just had unlimited resources and the most important ones, time, money, you know, the, the, the things that are, probably the hardest to produce, uh, you know, relationships. It, it, it was great. And, and by the end of it, I found that, you know, I, I, like I, like I said earlier, I, I just fully exercised that, that muscle or whatever it is. And I, I no longer had that lingering desire to, to, to know the unknown. Cause I, I'd kind of fully explored at least that element of it, that, that, which I'd built up for that trip. Mm-hmm. And it, and it has played out. I, as I came home, you know, I, I'm, I'm quite content now. You know, I, I, I feel like, you know, it sounds corny, but I could die tomorrow and, and I wouldn't have any regrets as far as not having ever taken a leap. It, it doesn't have to be a motorcycle trip. It, it's just, I think being able to, like I said, fully explore that which is where does your mind take you if if given just unlimited resources i I feel very lucky to have to been able to do that because it gives me a lot of peace now that you know whatever's going on in my life i i've i've had my time already and i feel like i can having done it once i can i know that i can do it again and and i I do it currently too I, i shouldn't say that i'm just you know biding my time to the next adventure either because you're not, you're not looking for that next adventure. Yeah, that's right. I kind of, that's a really good point is that I've kind of, you know, I, I see it all as a big adventure now. This, this is where I'm at currently is that continuation of, I got on the airplane, you know, once I got on the airplane, that opens the door to, you You can go back and get a desk job and you can still be happy in your desk job. And you can still, for me, it's skiing on the weekends. I, I kite surf on the weekends now. Um, I'm married very happily to my wife, Julia, 
And we just buzz around the state of Washington, Oregon, Idaho, uh, sometimes into BC. And we, we just, we're always going and doing things. And like I said, it's just, it's all one continuation of the same adventure. And, and that was really the key that I had to unlock for myself or was, was lucky enough to unlock. The motorcycle, did you bring it home? I did. I had it shipped home from Santiago. I don't know if I would have done that again. They, they told me down to Santiago it would cost $2,000 to send it back, which I don't think it was worth more than that to begin with. But at the time, I, you know, I still do. Uh, the, the sentimental value is through the roof on that bike, of course. And so I wanted to bring it home. Uh, frustratingly, when I got home, the, the American warehouse where I picked it up, they needed another $1,500 for me to, wow. <laughs> to release it. They didn't tell me that down in Santiago. I probably would have just left it somewhere or figured out how to sell it to another, to another traveler. Yeah, but, but wouldn't you regret that though in, in hindsight? Like now, what, sitting here talking about this, wouldn't you regret leaving the bike? That's just it. I, I, would, I would always wonder where it is and what happened to it and kind of wish it was sitting here in my garage like it is right now. Um, of course, you know, my wife would tell you it's, it's, it's a really nice drying rack for my ski clothes <laughs> right now. Really expensive one that takes up a lot of space, but I do, I do plan to get it running and, you know, I'd like to think it's, it's, it's a project for sometime in the next decade for me to, to get that thing running. And hopefully I'd like to really get it purring and ready for the next adventure. Will the next adventure be you and your wife going somewhere possibly? It's tough to say if, if it's a motorcycle trip, I don't know if she'd, I don't know if that's up her alley and, and, and it doesn't have to be, um, I, I will certainly go down that path and, and, and see if I could get her into that. I, I think there's, I think there's ways that you could make it a more, a, a trip that she would like to do. Um, but I think for me, I've always wanted to go to Alaska, um, on a motorcycle in the summer. Cause I was there in the winter, in the dead of winter, where at the equinox, there was like a half hour of sunlight. And I've just, you know, talking to people down there, they said, it's the exact opposite in the summer, right? You get a half an hour of, of darkness and it's the best time to be up there. And I've always thought if I can carve out a summer and take a bike up there, you'd have endless daylight for, for three, four months at a time. And just, just the roads you could cover there. Um, being able to speak English would be huge for me. Like I said, knowing what you're ordering, just, you know, I can't, I can't even begin to count the number of times that I took directions from someone in Central and South America and did not understand them and ended up even more lost than when I started. And, and you know, that, that is the fun of it. There, there's a lot that that's what makes international travel fun, but you know, I would also like a trip where I can understand the directions. And I think Alaska would be a really fun way to do that. You started out at graduation, fear of, you know, falling into the mundane life of the routines of getting a job and sitting at a desk. You did this adventure. You had so many things happen, an incredible time. And you find yourself in the end realizing that that's what you then yearned for at that point was to go and do that life that you were running away from that, uh, or is so in, in a way that um, what you would refer to back then as a dull life when you got back, somewhere after you got back, you were diagnosed with a medical issue. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. And this was kind of, this got very scary, probably scarier than anything in the, in the trip itself. But when I got back, 
I started, I mentioned I had back issues. So I started going to the chiropractor and, you know, kind of one thing led to the next, kept feeling weaker and weaker, even though I was, I was getting some muscle back. Um, and it probably took a couple of years before I started really, I was having mobility issues. And finally I bit the bullet and went to the doctor later than I should have. Um, but it's, it's, it's cause I kind of, I knew the news that was coming and I wasn't excited to hear it. And I, I really regret that because I, I think if I'd gone in earlier, I, I would have had less impact from it. But ultimately, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And and you can imagine, very tough diagnosis for when you're 27. I was starting to already have issues. Couldn't walk through a Costco at the time. Uh, it, that was too far. Uh, I was I fell down in the shower once. You know, th- things that are really, you know, not challenges that you should be having at age 27 and, and, uh, you know, things that are more relatable to people, you know, in their late eighties, things like that. And and, and so, uh, that was carving out a pretty, pretty tough road for me. Luckily I've, I've recovered quite a bit from that. I'm, I'm on a really good medication. Uh, it stopped all the progress of the disease and I've, my, my nervous system has, uh, recovered quite a bit to where I still can't walk long distances, um, or I'm still working on being able to walk long distances, but all the other things that I like to do, I'm able to do them. I'm really grateful for that. And I think there again, that was another thing where at least I'd had my, at least I'd fully explored myself in the world before that happened. And that made it a lot easier to focus on fixing the problem at hand rather than worrying about all the things that potentially I wasn't able to do. Mm. Will MS stay the way it is now or, or is it guaranteed to advance or what happens with it? It's, it's, it's a really interesting time to, to have MS and be treating MS because, you know, 20 years ago, there may have been one, if any medications available, they just didn't know anything about it. And now there's, I don't know the full count, but there's, you know, upwards eight, 10 medications and, and, and most of them most people can find one that works for them. And so what I'm really excited about is the one that I've got. So it's, it's an autoimmune disease where your where your immune system attacks your nervous system and your, you know, your, your spinal cord. And so as long as we can keep the immune system at bay and keep it from attacking, no new damage happens. And that's been the case for me for over three years now. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about that. So to answer your question, if this medicine keeps working, if I keep um, at it with a really healthy lifestyle, I'm very much, much more careful about what I eat, getting good sleep, um, staying active. If I can keep that up and keep the immune system from going into that overdrive attack mode anymore, I think I can maintain what I'm currently at and continue to build on, uh, you know, and, and regain a lot of what I'm still seeking mm-hmm. as far as, you know, being able to hike long distances and things like that but you're still going out and doing other things, outdoor things. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Clearly, you know, you were fortunate to do this trip when you were young and it sounds like you learned so much, not, not only about the places that you visited, but probably more importantly about yourself. And I'm curious how that has sort of carried forward for you. What, what is changes it's made for you? For instance, this job that you have uh, or any job, how is it, how is your experience on this trip your sort of growing up on this trip or, or expansion on this trip change the way you deal with things? 
you know, I'll, I'll give the credit. It was my wife that introduced me to my boss. And, and so she was the connection. But as far as, you know, doing any job that I've done since the motorcycle trip, I definitely find that I draw on the experiences from the motorcycle trip. And just that, you know, however bad it gets in whatever process failure that's that's happening or, you know, relationship management failure, it's it's just not the end of the world. And 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 nothing is until truthfully you kick the bucket, right? Mm-hmm. And, and 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 I think the motorcycle trip just taught me how deep you can dig when the times are tough. And and just I don't want to describe our trip as the times were so tough and, and, you know, nothing will ever compare. I think we relatively got off pretty easy, but there were certainly some moments where, you know, you're, you're a hundred miles from the nearest town and it's dark and it's raining and it might turn to snow and you just got to keep going. And, and I've, I've just carried that with me. And I think it served me very well in in many roles professionally, you know, uh, relationships, just everything dealing with MS specifically, um, it's, it's really some lessons that I value. Tom, it was great to, to get a part of your story. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Hey, thank you, Jim. I really appreciate it. was Tom Reuter from his home in Tacoma, Washington. Now, if you're interested in Tom's story, he's published a book about this adventure. It's called The Tom Report. It's published by our friends at Road Dog Pub. Uh, RoadDogPub.com is the website. We've got the link for The Tom Report, as well as some photos that you, you definitely want to see of Tom's adventure, all in the show notes for this episode at our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener, for being a part of this, for listening to the show. Hey, the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We need your support if you're not doing it already. Think about it anyway. Drop by the website, adventureriderradio.com, click on support. We've got some stickers there for anything $10 or more. Anything $50 or more gets a shout out on our Raw show. And of course, that brings me to the next thing I want to tell you about is that we have a new episode of Raw Out that's put out just about the time, just right before this show was put out, actually, for this month of March 2023. Raw is our monthly show that we do. It's a little bit different than Adventure Rider Radio. If you haven't heard it, it's very popular. It's a roundtable talk about motorcycle travel with myself and five travelers 
it, it's great fun. I have a lot of fun doing it every month. Anyway, you'll find that everywhere podcasts are found and you can find information about it as well as the photographs, the people that are on it, all on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, if you haven't done it already, we'd love a five-star review. Every, anywhere you get your podcast, give us a five-star review. That's helps, that helps other people find the show. Anyway, thank you very much once again for listening. My name is Jim Martin, and now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. I'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Ah!